Let's do. Uh, let's take a survey, just a quick survey of Second Timothy, uh, chapter one and two. I want to do that just for a couple minutes, and I'd like to do a little bit of review that may help you for your final essay. Second Timothy chapter two, obviously we examine more briefly, is Paul's final words to his dear son in the faith, Timothy, as he expects. As the fourth chapter points out, to be poured out like a drink offering, he believes that his day has come, his life is going to be given as an aroma, as a sacrifice, for the sake of Christ, he expects to be executed. He has last words for Timothy. In chapter 1 of 2 Timothy, he urges Timothy to be faithful. He tells him that it's important for him to overcome his natural timidity. God can use all temperaments. God can use all personality styles. He can use those who are very smooth and those who are very rough. He can use extroverts and he can use introverts. There's, there's no disqualification in personal style. But the pure extrovert does know, have to learn how to stop talking and listen if he wants to minister. And the pure introvert needs to force himself or herself out to be with people. And stop studying and studying and studying the books and preparing the lesson and actually get out there and minister. So Paul exhorts Timothy to overcome his natural timidity in this chapter. And he also points out to Timothy that at a time when your mentor is in chains and about to be killed, it could be tempting to be ashamed of the gospel, ashamed of your commitment. But he says, no, don't succumb to this temptation. Paul's hour of death is near. And, and now it's time for him to be proud of his faith and not fearful. In chapter 2, Paul is going to describe the church one more time. Already I've alluded to the first three verses in which he tells Timothy to be strong in grace. That's in Christ Jesus. He tells him crucial passage, which I've already quoted a couple of times to you. The things that... Timothy, he says, Timothy, the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses and trust to reliable men who will be able to teach others. And then he gives three analogies for the Christian life that cover, for those who like metaphors, uh, the front of what it means to minister for the long span of life for the Lord. Here they are, beginning in verse 3. Endure hardship like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No one serving as a soldier gets involved or entangled in civilian affairs. He wants to please his commanding officer. Similarly, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not receive the victor's crown unless he competes according to the rules. The hardworking farmer should be the first to receive a share of the crops. Reflect on what I'm saying, he says. I've just given you three metaphors to describe the Christian life. Chapter 2, verses 3 through 5. The Christian life is like the life of a soldier. That is to say, it involves warfare, it involves self-denial, it involves a focus, no divided loyalties. You don't get involved in civilian affairs. You have a certain purity of direction. That purity of direction means... That you're able to move when the commander tells you to move. You are loyal to your commanding officer. The Christian is also like an athlete. 
The athlete competes according to the rules. Now, he doesn't say what rules he's thinking of here, but there are probably two kinds of rules. The rules of the competition, you have to run in the lanes, you know, and you have to, if you're running track, and you, uh, you, know, you have to stay in the batter's box, and you, you, know, you can't have vicious holds if you're wrestling and so forth. Competing according to the rules of the game, but also maybe the rules of competition. The rules of competition are when it's tied late in the game, the team that's more fit usually wins. The team that has better focus usually wins. You've got to be ready to endure. You've got to be able to keep on. You've got to be prepared to endure hardship, to discipline yourself, to struggle. Two very active metaphors, especially athletics, very active metaphor. And then he moves to a, a milder metaphor, as if to say, you want to understand the Christian life, you have to have all three. Because sometimes the Christian life is like farming life. And the farmer is not wrestling. He plants, and then he waits. And the Christian life is out like that too sometimes. You plant the seed, you tell the truth, you start a ministry, nothing happens. And then after a while, still nothing happens. And you need to wait another while, and still nothing happens. And you have to wait upon the Lord to send the rain, to wait upon the Lord to send the sun to make the crop grow. Christian life is a struggle, like an athlete, fighting, discipline, competing. Christian life is detachment, willingness to move out, to do anything to please the commanding officer. In the ancient world, the higher officers did not marry. We talked about this before, I believe. They did not marry. Uh, they did not have a home many times they could call their own. Uh, that's the Christian. But also the Christian is the one who waits, who knows how to wait on God. In chapter 2, which is going to be my focus here, he gives, Paul gives Timothy some reasons to endure in verses 9, 8 through 13. He says in verse 8, you've got to remember Christ who rose from the dead. He says in verses 9 and 10 that he's going to have to suffer, and the pattern of the Christian life is often suffering and glory. Jesus suffered, and then he had glory, he rose, and that may be the way for you as well. And then he, said, then he says to him, I've got a saying for you in verse 11. Here's a trustworthy saying. If we died with him, we will also live with him. Just as Jesus, just as Paul, so us. Then on to something else. If we endure, we will also reign with him. That's glory again. Then something else. If we disown him, he will disown us. I'll insert the word but. If we are faithless, he will remain faithful, for he cannot disown himself. Now many people have puzzled over what this means. It almost seems like a contradiction. If we disown him, he will disown us, but if we are faithless, he will remain faithful. Wait a minute. Aren't disowning and being faithless the same thing? I think not. The idea of disowning, the Greek word is deny, as in Peter denying Christ three times and saying, I don't know the man. If you deny, if you disown, if you say, I want no part of Christ. I don't know who he is. I don't know what this gospel is about. I want no part of it. It's all a bunch of lies and deception. I reject it. I hate it. I repudiate it. 
you say that as an unbeliever, or if, after apparently walking with the Lord for a while, back to Hebrews 6, after walking apparently with a profession of faith, say all that, if you reject Christ, then you are rejected. If you disown, if you deny, if you curse your former Christian life, then you'll be disowned. But if you are faithless, and I take this to be a milder thing, if you are merely, can I say that? If you are merely unfaithful, then that's forgivable. In fact, God pledges that if we fail to keep our vows, if we fail to serve the way we would like to serve, if we fail to honor Him and obey Him and minister, He's not going to disown us or send us to hell or reject us as His children for that. He'll be faithful to us. He'll be gentle and merciful to us the way He has said and the way He has shown in the past. If I could use marriage as an analogy again, since Paul's introduced it here, let me tell you about uh, just a little bit about the day I got married. I got married in a period when people were doing some strange things at their wedding ceremonies. Some people who are roughly my age would know about this. There was a period, boys and girls, when uh, in the 70s, in the dark ages of fashion, the decade that taste forgot, some people say. In the 70s, people used to get married. Men used to wear lavender ruffled shirts. And pink ruffled shirts with black trim. Anybody here get into a wedding like that or see a wedding like that? I want to tell you, I did not do that. I knew better. I was just, you know, white. Okay. There was another custom in the 70s that was equally foolish, and that was making up your own vows. I succumbed. I'm very bad at memorizing things verbatim. I'm very good at paraphrasing and extemporaneously getting the gist across. And I knew. Yes. Yes, you're right. That's what's coming. I knew I was going to forget my vows. There wasn't even a chance I would say them right. First of all, I can't memorize. Second, they were, you know, just a hodgepodge of borrowing from here and there. So I told my brother, who was my best man, I said, Paul, I'm going to forget my vows. I know that I'm going to forget my vows. Write my vows on your left hand. And so as you stand there next to me and I forget, then you can just look at your hand and prompt me. He didn't want to do that. But, you know, he's my best man. I'm getting married. He said, okay, okay, I'll write, my, I'll write your vows on my hand. Well, I got about the first phrase out right, and then I started ad-libbing. I saw him out of the corner of my eye. He, just, he went like this, looked at his hand. Just went like that. <laughs> Just put it down. He said, you're on your own. After the wedding, some people said to me, those vows were so beautiful. I never heard them like that before. And I said, and neither had anyone else. <laughs> In the history of the human race, nobody ever heard those vows before, and they never will eat afterward, and nobody knows what they were. So, all right. That was one thing that happened on my wedding day. Another thing that happened on my wedding day during the same time is while I was fretting about not remembering, I kept saying, you know, what I really want to do is instead of saying, I promise to love and to cherish and be faithful, I said, I'm not going to do that. I can't do that. I'm not going to be faithful all the time. What I should say is I promise to try 
to be faithful. And my brother on that one also gave me good advice. He said, you can't say, I promise to try. People think you're trying to weasel out of it. And I said, well, I don't want to weasel out of it. They all think you are, so don't do it. So I said, okay, I won't do it. Now, here's the thing. Wedding vows, wedding vows, whether they're made up or traditional, will we be faithful to them, perfectly faithful? Love and the cherish, to have and the hold and, you know, See, I don't remember. I don't know them. <laughs> I don't know. And I've, I've, I've officiated lots of weddings, and I don't know them. You know, in sickness and in health and plenty and want, as long as you both shall live, etc. Is anybody perfectly faithful to those? No. So if you are faithless, that is to say, if you fail to perfectly keep the vows, you're still married. You still love your spouse, your husband, or your wife. And you're still married, and God is still pleased. And, and he'll love you and care for you and uphold your marriage, even if it's not perfect. That's faithless. Then there's another thing, and that's denying your vows. That's saying, I don't want to be your husband or wife anymore. I don't love you. I'm not going to care for you. I'm not going to cherish you. I'm sick of you. I'm moving to you know Guadalupe or something. And, and you, but really, you're moving to Costa Rica, and you're not. For, you know, I'm sick of it. That's denial. If you disown your spouse, then you're divorced, and that's a horrible thing. See? So, will we keep our vows to God? No. But if we want to keep them, even if we're faithless and don't keep them perfectly, God will be generous, will be merciful, because He can't disown Himself. Why is He going to be merciful toward us? Because it's in His nature. He knows that we still love Him, and so He's going to love us because He's a merciful God and a forgiving God. So, Paul gives us and gives Timothy great consolation. Uh, I don't have time to go into the rest of the book, but I will simply remind you that he does describe the pastor's work. What's the essence of a pastor's work? His last charge. He tells Timothy several times, remind people of the truth. One more time he says, or two more times he says, don't quarrel about words. Don't get into disputes about silly things, genealogies and all the rest. He also tells them they need to live, he tells Timothy he needs to live well. His godliness must be evident to all. His progress as a Christian should be evident to all, he says. Why does he say a thing like that? Because the life of a minister or a deacon or an elder or a Christian counselor adorns their testimony. The, the godliness of the godly is a, is a kind of persuasion. As people see you living out what you say you're going to do. In fact, if I could, I know this is not in the... Uh, in the notes, and it's not this way. Put it to you this way: Where does your authority come as a Christian leader? Where does it come from? I suggest you it comes from three sources. Source number one is walking with God. By walking with God and knowing God and being transformed by God, your life itself will become better. Will become a light, and will become a confirmation of the teaching you give. I want to tell you, people are looking for role models. By walking with God, I mean walking with God personally, but also mean your personal holiness gives you authority. 
Uh, my wife was in the hospital several times, kind of close together, a few years ago for different things. She's fine. Um, but she had, during this span, she had two roommates, two roommates, two separate hospitalizations, two different hospitals, two roommates who were soap opera addicts, and two of them in her presence, they weren't talking to her, but talking to her friends, said, well, you know, when I get out of the hospital, I'm going to tell Johnny, you know, the way Marianne did on The Young and the Restless, I'm going to tell her. And they were consciously modeling, two separate roommates were consciously modeling their lives after soap opera stars. Now, that proves that people are desperate for role models. And they are. I, I know a minister once who came to me and was talking to me about some struggles in his ministry. He said, you know, I'm just at the end. I feel like my ministry is so, it's just nothing is happening. And, and everything seems to be falling apart. My, my personal walk with the Lord is, is confused at best right now. And he said, you know what's really weird? During this time, four separate people, maybe it was five, I forget, it was four or five, separate people in, in my church, he says to me, have come to me in the last couple of weeks and said, I am modeling my life after you. Now, we would say he was probably doing a lot better than he thought, right? And the truth is that he, he really is a very, very fine man, and he's over his period of distress, and I'm very glad of that. People are looking for role models. You know, but back to the basketball thing, the people in my church were right. <laughs> people are looking, even if you're new, even if you're young. They're looking for role models. You say, how could I be a role model? How could I, how would, why would anybody want to look at me as a guide for their life? The answer is because we're all image of God and we're all reflecting God back. I'll give you a simple analogy. You ever, you ever look at, at the sheet metal on an airplane when the sun is hitting it? It's blinding, isn't it? The plane has no light in itself. It's just reflecting the light. But the reflected light can be searing. In fact, sometimes if you're flying in a plane, you can see the light of the sun bouncing. Some of you probably noticed this if you look. Bouncing off the plane and illuminating the clouds below, sometimes even thousands of feet below. Have you seen that? Reflected glory can be pretty strong glory, too. And even if you say, I'm hardly reflecting any of the glory of God, enough can shine through that those who are in darkness can say, it's blinding me, almost. Or certainly, it's illuminating. It's illuminating to me. People are going to give you credibility. You will gain credibility by your walk. That's number one. Source number two of your, of your authority as a Christian leader is your understanding of Scripture. Your ability to say, thus says the Lord. Time in the text. Time in the text. Knowing what the Bible says. If you know what it says and are committed to communicating that, you know interesting things will happen. You'll find yourself actually saying what you believe the Bible says. Even if you're a timid person, if you soak up the Scriptures long enough, you'll find that you can't help but say it, as Jeremiah said. Try to keep it in. I can't do it. It's like fire in my bones because I believe it. And I have to speak. Keep on treasuring the Scripture and the courage to speak will come to you. Number three, I've already said this before, actually 
doing things for people. Can I give a word especially to those who are excellent students? You know, excellent students are often excellent students because they love the books. They love the books. They love to study. They, they enjoy studying tests. They enjoy taking tests. You know there are people like that? They won't admit it. But they like taking tests because they like preparing. They like mastering material. They like mastering the books. They like taking a test and saying, I defeated that test. I aced it and I know it. There are people like that in this world. But you know what? The people who are like that, there's nothing wrong with that, but they tend to be introverts. And things turn around. Suddenly the person that got a B-plus on the test, partly because they were out ministering to people, will suddenly have a more effective ministry because they get out of the study. And they're out there mixing up with people. And they may not know as much, but they're using what they know more courageously. You've got to actually use it. You've got to get out there and do it and minister to people. If you're an introvert, you can overcome it. It can be done. If you're an extrovert, you can overcome that too. Each personality style has tendencies that can go, go good directions, go in good directions, or go in bad directions. Uh, they're not evil or good in themselves. The issue is that God be honored, that we strive to honor God in whatever we do.